This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe by Daniel Trilling. A mother puts her children into a refrigerator truck and asks, what else could I do? A runaway teenager comes of age on the streets, sleeping in abandoned buildings. A student leaves his war-ravaged country behind because he doesn't want to kill. Everyone among the thousands of people who come to Europe in search of asylum each year possesses a unique story. But those stories don't end as they cross into the West. In Lights in the Distance, acclaimed journalist Daniel Trilling draws on years of reporting to build a portrait of the refugee crisis as seen through the eyes of the people who experienced it firsthand. As the European Union has grown, so has a tangled and often violent system designed to filter out unwanted migrants. Visiting camps and hostels, sneaking into detention centers, and delving into his own family's history of displacement, Trilling weaves together the stories of people he met and followed from country to country. In doing so, he shows that the terms commonly used to define them refugee or economic migrant, legal or illegal, deserving or undeserving, fall woefully short of capturing the complex realities. The founding story of the EU is that it exists to ensure the horrors of the 20th century are never repeated. Now, as it comes to terms with the worst refugee crisis since the Second World War, its declared values of freedom, tolerance, and respect for human rights are being put to the test. Lights in the Distance is a uniquely powerful and illuminating exploration of the nature and human dimensions of the crisis. Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe by Daniel Trilling. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's episode is about the alarming new report out from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and how it is that William Nordhaus, an economist whose work is dedicated to arguing that it would be too inefficient to address the ecological crisis aggressively and urgently, recently won the economics equivalent of the Nobel Prize. My guest is Alyssa Battistoni, a PhD candidate in political science at Yale University and an associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. She writes frequently for publications including The Nation, N Plus One, Dissent, and Jacobin, where she is on the editorial board. Before we move on to the interview, my frenetic socialist intellectual audio content production schedule is only possible because you, our listeners, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. And it's not just my gratitude for evading the tragedy of the commons that you get in return for your contribution. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of left-wing books. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Please... Thank you, and here's Alyssa Battistoni.
Melissa Battistoni, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, Dan. It's exciting to be on The Dig. (laughs) There's a new report out from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which estimates that by 2040, the Earth will have warmed 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit from pre-industrial levels, which will be catastrophic. Explain the findings and their implications for the Earth and the human beings who live here. As you said, you know, the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's like the gold standard of climate reports. Um, They are produced by an international body of scientists. They aggregate thousands of scientific studies. They're very um, robust. Uh, And this one was specially commissioned by, um, after the Paris Accords, uh, the big climate agreement that many nations signed almost three years ago now. Um, And it was to answer the question, how can humanity prevent the global temperature rise more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial level, which is 2.7 degrees uh, Fahrenheit here in the U.S., one of the few countries that actually uses Fahrenheit. And so the answer of the report is basically like, it will be very hard to uh, prevent that global temperature rise. To give a bit of background, um, so a 1.5 degree Celsius rise is typically the threshold of caution and two degrees is has been the the I guess threshold of reasonable safety or something. It's been the it's been the level that has has kind of uh, been tacitly and in the case of the Paris Accords explicitly agreed on as as like the level that the world will keep warming to. Climate activists and particularly in climate vulnerable countries like small island nations have have really emphasized that 1.5 degrees is important. The refrain of a lot of small island nations has been 1.5 to stay alive. And so they've campaigned for um, a much stricter uh, temperature rise to keep it to a much lower temperature rise for a long time. So this report basically confirms that that target is really important uh, and that hitting 1.5 degrees of temperature rise would be really a significant difference from that extra half degree of warming that would get us up to two degrees, um, which has, again, been kind of like what's been seen as like a, I don't know, consensus of what actually, you know, nations agree will happen, though we're not on target for that either, which I'll say more about in a minute. So between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, there's more heat-related deaths. There'll be smaller crop yields. There'll be a lot more like disasters and extreme weather events, hundreds of millions more people in poverty, um, millions of climate refugees, um, a lot of stress on water supplies, and all of these things that we know are effects of climate change. Um, You know, I mean, we're at one degree Celsius of warming right now uh, from pre-industrial levels, and we're already seeing a lot of those effects. Um, It is here now. That's, I think, a real major affirmation that what climate activists have been saying for a long time (laughs) is correct, and we really need to limit warming. The problem is that we are not on track to hit 1.5 degrees at all, um, or even two degrees, despite like what the Paris Agreement said that nations would aim for. Right now we're on track for three degrees of warming by 2100 and that we will hit. Um, According to the report, we're going to hit 1.5 at the current rate of warming by 2040. And then the other major thing is like that to hit the 1.5, we would need to lower carbon emissions 45% by 2030. So in 12 years, we would need to um, lower carbon emissions 45% from 2010 levels. And they've risen since 2010. So we have to cut a lot of 
Yes. So we have to cut a lot of carbon emissions very fast in basically a decade when we've basically only gone in the other direction. And the answer they basically give is like, how do you, so how do you prevent the rise of more than 1.5 degrees? And they say unprecedented change in all aspects of society. Um, So you know, everything from getting off fossil fuels as soon as possible to changing land use patterns. So we're not cutting down forests to um, raise beef cattle to changing urban development to favor public transport and a whole bunch of other things. Um, There are some, some of, some of the kind of social possibilities are named in the report and others are are not, but um, they do emphasize, you know, all this is possible within the laws of physics. Uh, You know, we can keep warming down. Um, the problem is, as usual, political will and uh, how you how you actually make <laughs> unprecedented changes in all aspects of society. Um, so I think that's really the challenge that it puts to those of us who are on the political side of things. So the, the very same day that the IPCC report was released, economist William Nordhaus won the equivalent, the discipline's equivalent of the Nobel Prize, which you describe as very bad news because Nordhaus studies climate economics and alarmingly, he argues that it doesn't make sense to make costly changes to avert global warming. What are the the economics of his argument for gradualism and where does it fit into the larger debate within the discipline? What have the effects of Nordhaus's arguments been on policy? So Nordhaus is this environmental economist who um, uh, has been working on this for like 40 years or so. I mean, a lot of the news reports kind of seem to think that this was a fitting, uh, you know, uh, award on the state that he had, um, that Nordhaus was being recognized for taking, for developing a lot of tools that we could use to address climate change and so on. And um, sort of uh, that this was some kind of triumph for, um, for the climate in some way. And, uh, you know, he's not as bad as many <laughs> of the winners of the Nobel in economics in the past. Um, but I definitely don't think he, you know, he's he's been somebody who is who is known for a gradual approach to addressing climate change, who has, I think, quite consistently downplayed um, the risks, who has, um, you know, actively chastised other scholars for for urging more urgent action. So he's been working on environmental economics since the 70s and his early work. A lot of it was in response to like the limits to growth debates of the 70s about whether um, resource scarcity was a problem for continued growth. Um, And he did various work on that. uh, But one of, you know, one of his arguments was that resource scarcity isn't really a problem because as as resources get more expensive, their price goes up, someone develops a more efficient way of using them or substitutes for them. Um, And uh, so you can always kind of like replace natural resources. And he's basically stuck to that with um, other things like, you know, the ability of trees to absorb carbon or whatever. So there's on the one hand, this kind of idea that we can always... um, Nothing about like the environment or natural world really threatens growth because we can always come up with a substitute and that the mark, you know, kind of the. um, And that the price mechanism will uh, prompt technological advancements that will fix whatever problems we encounter. Yes, exactly. That it will drive innovation or the thing that really uh, often drives me nuts about Nordhaus is in particular is his 
he's been a supporter of what's known as a high discount rate. Basically, you know, discount rates are an economic tool to assess like changes in value over time and um, particularly to assess the value of things in the future. And it's become an important tool in environmental environmental economics because so much of the field is about estimating how a resource use in the present will affect people use, living in the future or affect the availability of resources in the future and so on. Um, in mainstream economics, a high discount rate reflects the expectation of economic growth because it sees the present as a time to invest and benefit from future growth. Um, and if you think that the economy is going to keep growing into the future, you want to put off any costs until a future point in time when you're going to be richer. Um, and so, and use, and use whatever money you might've spent to say over climate change to invest now, uh, in the stock market or whatever. And so then, and so that will grow your total wealth. And then later you can use that money to address the effects of climate change. So in 2006, this British economist, Nicholas Stern produced, um, a big report for the British government called the Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change, um, which at the time was a really big deal. It was like kind of like an inconvenient truth. I mean, it was in the same era and it was one of these like landmark reports that climate change was <laughs> serious. And Stern, you know, Stern argued in favor of taking immediate action on climate. And he had, crucially, he used a really low discount rate that basically meant that he was saying that the costs of action in the present, they might be high, but they were worth it. Um, and he says, this is a quote, the benefits of strong early action on climate change far outweigh the cost of not action of not acting. This was uh, his low discount rate sort of foregrounded the need for immediate action in the terms of economics. Um, and this was a major bone that Nordhaus had to pick with Stern was using a discount rate that was too low. He said, the future should be discounted more heavily. The cost of action in the present should be weighted more heavily than future benefits. Um, that it would be better for everyone in the present and the future to put off the costs of climate mitigation, again, into the richer future. And instead, sort of like impose the costs slowly uh, via a moderate climate tax or moderate carbon tax um, that wouldn't disrupt economic growth, that wouldn't disrupt, you know, uh, in the words of a lot of climate reports, business as usual. And that would just kind of slowly phase out carbon emissions. And this was basically the standard position uh, in mainstream economics, like a lot of economists uh, agreed with Nordhaus. So there's this one sense that there's that the, you have a ton of time um, and that you, there's not much connection to the present. Um, but then I think also that's just, you know, growth and market optimism that's just like, well, you know, um, the market is, you know, you have X rate of return. Uh, and so if projects that would reduce carbon emissions don't outperform that, like just invest the money and we'll have and that will make more money and that will kind of be you know, again, like the, the pot for climate adaptation. So I think this is kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> the mainstream petition, I think, is totally nuts. And when I first read a lot of the literature, I was just like, what? <laughs> this is so out of touch with reality. Even the day he won the Nobel or the day after, but I think the day he found out. So Nordhaus told his economics class at Yale, where um, I am in grad school, um, he told them, don't let anyone distract you from the work at hand, which is economic growth. Um, and this is, you know, now the, when um, I think it's quite clear what the costs of kind of economic growth at all costs um, are quite high and disturbing. So, um, yeah, so that's been his position. Do you think the problem with the biggest problem with Nordhaus is that he uses too high of a discount rate or is the more basic problem 
the use of a discount rate in environmental economics period? I might phrase it slightly differently. I'm not sure if the problem is just the discount rate. I think the problems are, A, that um, the ultimate aim is always growth. And so there are a lot of different tools that are, like, I think the discount rate is one tool that you could use in different ways that is not necessarily like some kind of evil. It's not necessarily like a a harmful thing. It can be, I mean, I guess like with all of these things, like a lot of economics, there's all these different tools that you can use. And on the one hand, they're kind of technical little rates or whatever, but they do have like an important political impact. And so I think the thing that I see as most insidious <laughs> is that there's all of these, um, you know, there's these debates going on in economics that are about technical tweaks, basically, but that carry a lot of really important, like moral and political assumptions with them. And the discount rate is is one of them. But I think that, you know, there's it's it's important because it then helps you calculate things like what is the appropriate level of carbon tax or um, what is the appropriate level of what's called the social cost of carbon. It's like a measure that the EPA and other federal agencies use to basically kind of um, estimate some of the effects of, of carbon emissions in cost benefit analyses. A lot of these things could be used in a lot of different ways. I think the problem is, yeah, that there that there's, it's just kind of hidden politics happening. Um, and also that it makes it you know, we're not having a real discussion about what we should do on climate. It's all just framed in terms of how do we, you know, tweak this this number that will then determine what policies we're using. What bothers me more about Nordhaus in general uh, is it's a kind of an assumption that things are basically fine as they are and should just kind of continue on this gradual upward trajectory or something. Don't be alarmist about these resp- these climate predictions. If we just keep going as we are, more or less, uh, things will you know, just kind of like slowly curve upwards. And one of the things that bothers me about that is that, you know, particularly his frame of climate action as a problem where the costs are all in the present and the benefits are all in the future. So that people in the present basically have to pay some amount in order that we, that people in the in the future are better off. And, but it also, I think, has this view of climate action as something that this like bad negative thing that no one actually wants to do. It's like a disgusting medicine that your doctor is making you take. Um, it's just like a tax that you have to pay now. And that's bad. And you don't want to pay more costs now. Obviously, the the raw economic power of extractive industries and their conservative political allies have been more consequential than Nordhaus's ideas. But I'd like to ask you about the relationship between those two things. Can you explain a bit about how you see the dynamic between ideological and intellectual climate skepticism on the one hand, not only Nordhaus's approach, but outright climate denialists at places like the Heartland Institute. And on the other hand, the climate skepticism and denials material foundations in one of the most powerful industries on earth. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really important question because, yeah, I definitely don't mean to like overstate the case and imply that if Nordhaus came up with a different discount rate, we would have just like solved climate change or that it's really economists who are to blame for everything. I, cause I, if, if, if he hadn't been fooling Exxon all this time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like I'm sure, I'm sure that the, you know, the, the Exxon is just like waiting for the new Nordhaus report and the new, like, you know, and to be like, okay, like we agree with this now, you know? So yeah, it's definitely, um, 
it's not it's not because of these like sort of obscure debates going on between economists that we haven't taken serious climate action. Um, however, I do think that they play an important role in um, legitimizing like a gradual approach to climate change and in like reinforcing, legitimizing a gradual approach, reinforcing the worldview that they express, which is um, again, the kind of none of this is that serious and we can, we can continue more or less as things are with like some minor adjustments and, you know, I think this is also obviously why Nordhaus has gotten a lot of attention and won the prize, because his view is not radically challenging. Um, because, you know, there are a lot of other people who are working in environmental and ecological economics on similar issues and who are seen as like cranks because they have more challenging perspective. But I also think, you know, I mean, you can see a lot of the Nordhausian view very clearly in the kinds of proposals that come out around climate, you know, like Nordhaus has advocated basically like a moderate climate tax or a carbon tax. And that is basically what we've seen as the major policy measure on the table for, you know, almost two decades now, um, where it's just kind of like put a moderate carbon tax on, make it a little more expensive to emit carbon. And, you know, this is something that, um, that, you know, Exxon is on board with. Like the day after the IPCC report came out and Nordhaus won the prize, ExxonMobil announced that they would spend a million dollars supporting a campaign for a carbon tax. I think it would be $40 a ton or it would start at $40 a ton of carbon uh, and it would go along with gutting the rest of um, in this proposal they're putting forth. It would gut the rest of the EPA's ability to regulate emissions and other sort of climate measures. So they're basically like, yeah, we'll take this like low carbon tax and get rid of the rest of the, the state's ability to, <laughs> to regulate us. Okay, we'll take that deal. And if they're saying, okay, we'll take that deal, then that means that they know it's not actually going to affect their business model. Because nothing, nothing they would voluntarily agree to could possibly be significant enough to deal with the level of crisis we're facing. Exactly. Like it might, you know, it might hurt them some, but like not, but they, I think they realize that they need to have some kind of low cost alternative um, so that they can say, yeah, we support climate action while they keep selling the product that is like fueling climate change very directly because the whole world economy is built around fossil fuels. It's, you have to have a very high tax to, to really have an impact the IPCC report says a carbon tax would need to be at the least $135 a ton in 2030 to as much as $5,000 a ton. I mean, they have a really wide range because they're just kind of like aggregating all of these different suggestions from like different economics papers. At the high end, a carbon tax would need to ramp up to $27,000 a ton by the end of the century, which is just kind of a ludicrous amount. That's just banning fossil fuels are right, which frankly, I think we should just do a lot sooner. <laughs> um, you write that that even as global warming forecasts have only changed for the worse, that there is one important way in which the political landscape in the U.S. has changed for the better, and that's that the left has grown more to be more powerful than it has been in a very long time. And the upshot of that is that as each new scientific report makes it clearer than ever that enormous transformations will be required to avert catastrophe, enormous transformation is precisely what the left is supposed to be all about. Can you lay out the stakes and 
how the left can make climate justice central to our politics as we seek to take power? You know, climate is an issue that I think really can drive home for people how this idea, as you say, that like there is a really massive transformation is needed. And um, I think a lot of people, so like on the one hand, you have a lot of people who have kind of found their way to the left over the past, um, you know, decade or so over the course of various, you know, everything from the financial crisis to the Trump election and so on. Um, and then on the other hand, I think there's a lot of people for whom, um, like reading things like the IPCC report or pay- listening to the news on climate and hearing how serious the problem is and how significant the transformations that, um, you know, these kind of like sober scientists are saying need to happen can be a radicalizing force, even if people don't necessarily know what to do politically with that energy. Um, people realize that some major changes have to take place. And I think you can even see this in in the reports themselves, where you do see scientists, I think, slowly over time, going from trying to be very, very, like, buttoned up and objective and like, well, here's what we can see, and then realizing that things aren't happening and, um, and realizing themselves, like, the scope of change that needs to take place and, like, issuing these warnings about you know, changes to all levels of society and so on, and and saying that what we need is political will and trying to to urge political action in some way, even if they don't, you know, they're not like calling themselves like eco-socialists or saying what have you, but they have, but they're doing these like modelings of different social scenarios and so on. So, and I think for a lot of people who aren't climate scientists, but who are kind of observers, there is a real potential to see the need to change a lot of things. So I think that is an opportunity for the left to say, well, we've been thinking about this for a long time. We have some ideas about how to transform society. It's definitely something that we cannot count on, um, I think, Democrats as they are now to do for us. You know, the gamble of the Obama era that we could sneak climate regulation in through the back door, I think, failed pretty miserably. And we can't just operate along those kinds of lines of like, don't talk about it too much and like do some technocratic measures and it will through the EPA or other administrative agencies. It has to be a thing that we have a vision of how, um, you know, how like taking action on climate is not just a huge cost on the present again and like Nordhausian terms, but how we can make it cost on Exxon Mobil definitely, but like a benefit for a lot of people who are living today and could use, who don't want to have more costs when they're already struggling in different ways. And so we have to, I think, have a a vision for that, for how climate action on climate in the present could actually make a lot of people's lives better um, and push candidates on it in the same way, you know, that something like Medicare for all became very quickly something that like every like left liberal progressive politician was like, yeah, I support Medicare for all. You know, what's the version of that for climate? Well, my last question is, if Bernie runs for president in 2020, what does his climate platform have to look like to, on a policy level, be sufficient to the task and on the political level, be sufficient to demarcate a clear break with the Democratic establishment's approach to climate politics? There's been certainly a lot of energy on the left around like a Green New Deal type program, which, you know, seems to mean different things to different people, but at the very least seems to have some component that's like a major green jobs program. And there was a version of that in the Obama years, but it was pretty paltry, I would say, as part of the like recovery uh, stimulus package. Um, So I think if you had a 
having some kind of more robust screen jobs program, in my opinion, that should be oriented towards support for care work and <laughs> towards reduced work overall. I don't always love the new Green New Deal framing because I think there are th- some things we don't want to emulate about the New Deal, not only in its entire social structure, but also because the New Deal was basically aimed at re-stimulating a growth economy, which I'm not sure that is the the orientation that we need. You know, I think some version of that certainly seems it's very popular. It would be, I think, a major kind of like public works type initiative. There's been, I mean, certainly like publicly funded and very aggressive clean energy transition it's another thing that I think a lot of candidates tend to talk about, but I think having a clear vision of that, that is, you know, there have been actually like quite significant improvements in clean energy technology, you know, recent years. So like having a view of how those become, how we like actually use those to supplement or not to supplement, to replace fossil fuels instead of just supplementing them, because often energy, developing new sources of energy just means adding them onto existing sources of energy. So we could have like all of this clean energy, but we also have all of this, you know, oil and gas and coal energy. So actually um, replacing them, which I think will require some significant taking on fossil fuels. And that's, I think, where some of the the, the politics will um, get tricky, but also will be a, um, a sharp break. There are a lot of things that probably are part of state and city level projects around like free public transportation and how cities are built and so on that I think is really important and could be part of a national level platform, even if a lot of the the details are maybe worked out at lower levels. I think it will be very important to take on the way the Trump administration has treated migrants uh, and immigrants and the way that the from deportations to separating families to all of the awful things that they are doing. It's just going to be really in a world where we are definitely going to see many, many more people having to migrate because of climate. This is going to be, you know, it's going to be a major issue, but, you know, in general, I think, so I think there's a lot of things that you could imagine being part of a a political program. That's like not actually that are not ridiculous to imagine. I think that a lot of them will require being very, a lot more the, the the place to draw the line with a lot of the rest of the Democratic Party, I think, is in saying, yeah, we are going to robustly use the power of the state and the resources we have, public resources, to actively build the society in the world we want and not just to sort of like create a market signal and say that the private sector will work it out. I actually don't think that carbon taxes are bad or uh, you know, gas taxes or any of these things. Like I think they can have a place in a broader climate policy, but I just don't think they're not going to do the job on their own. And so I think it's saying, yeah, we are going to actively do something and intervene and like we have a vision and we're going to build it, which is not really something we've seen very much of. Well, let's hope we see more of it. Alyssa Battistoni, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Alyssa Battistoni is a PhD candidate in political science at Yale, an associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, and a frequent contributor to The Nation, N Plus One, Dissent, and Jacobin, where she is on the editorial board. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once remarked after noting that, man lives from nature, i.e. nature is his body. 
and he must maintain a continuing dialogue with it if he is not to die. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about this show. Please make propaganda for us. And also do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.